Welcome to another archive edition of Science, a Candle in the Dark. This episode is a recording of the show as broadcast on 88.1 KFCF in Fresno, California on August 25th, 2017. As regular listeners may know, the show is broadcast on every fourth Tuesday of the month at 3.30 Pacific Time on KFCF and is hosted locally by Dr. Ulrich Muller of California State University, Fresno. Science, a candle in the dark. This is our monthly conversation about the wonder of science and how it illuminates our lives in this incredible universe. In association with Central Cafe, Central Valley, Cafe Scientifique, we strive to make science a part of our public discourse, especially here in California's Central Valley. I'm your co-host, Dr. Ulrike Müller from the Biology Department at Fresno State, and I'm hosting today with your host, Madhu Kati who's calling in from his home institution at North Carolina State University. I'm also joined by Dr. David Lent and Dr. Andrew Jones. They're social professors at Fresno State University. Dr. Lent is a neuroscientist in the biology department. Dr. Jones is an environmental sociologist in the sociology department. Okay, KFCF is a listen-sponsored radio brought to you from Fresno by the Free College Foundation. We depend on you, our listener, to fund the station and this program. We do not receive any funds from corporations or underwriters or other sponsors. So please, dear listener, call in at 559-573-3350. Or you can go to our website as www.kfcf.org and we appreciate any support that fits your budget. So I would like now to welcome to our show Madhu Kadi, your host. Hello, Madhu. Hi, Ulrike, and hello, listeners. And I would also like to welcome Andrew Jones. Hi, Andrew. Hello, everyone. And Dr. David Lent. Hello. And today's show is going to be about science as a collaborative and international enterprise. As you all can feel, it's summer right now. And for many university professors, that means a three-month break from teaching. Vacation, right? Yes, of course. Yes, sure. So just in case you thought that means we all take a three-month vacation, no, we do not. Because many of us actually use this class-free time for our research. And we travel to collaborators and to conferences. So here to talk with me about our research collaboration, like I said, is your host, Madhu, our guests, Dr. Lent and Dr. Jones. And I would like to do a quick round where each of us quickly share what we've been up to this summer or this year, just to showcase how we collaborate and travel internationally. Let's start with uh, Dr. Caddy. Hi, yeah. Uh, This summer I have not traveled internationally, but... My research, as uh, some listeners may remember, is about urban ecology, and uh, it is inherently collaborative, 
and also the questions I asked are about the ecosystems uh, we find in cities or how cities function as ecosystems around the world. And I, to do that, to be able to understand how cities can function as ecosystems, we have to compare different cities. So I've been involved in international collaborations, trying to get a sense of how cities work and what kind of other plants and animals and species live in cities by working with urban ecologists around the world. So I'm part of this network called Urbionet, Mm-hmm. which is uh, short for Urban Biodiversity Network. And this was a network that grew out of some collaborations I'd had with some colleagues, uh, about two dozen of us from pretty much every continent except Antarctica, <laughs> got together and pitched uh, a proposal to the National Science Foundation uh, to establish this network and, uh, and the NSF, uh, after some initial grumpy reviews, uh, gave us <laughs> the money a couple of years ago, so we are about halfway through the grant. And the goal is to build and expand this network where, uh, you know, urban ecologists and urban ecology sort of practitioners from around the world can get together, have a few meetings and conferences. But more importantly, we start pulling together data from our distinct projects in cities in Australia or South Africa or, you know, India. Mm-hmm. Uh, Sweden uh, and in the US, put it all together and start comparing patterns and processes we find in different places to gain some insight into what's happening to what we, you know, we call the Anthropocene in this age with uh, so much human impact on the planet and cities are at the heart of that. So I think we are addressing some big important urgent questions and we would not be able to do it if we didn't have this collaborative network. Yeah. You know, I can sit in, in one place. I did that for some years in Fresno working on my own, and then I started a local collaboration. But without the international collaboration, you can't really ask these questions that might have uh, global significance. Yeah. And one of your local collaborators is actually Andrew, who is here with us yeah. today. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and uh, I'm the, the local-oriented member of this little group today. Uh, my summer has been playing catch-up on sabbatical work that I was supposed to have done this past spring, but illness kind of prevented that. So um, I'm working with Madhu on our project looking at water usage and its impacts on biodiversity. Plus, we're also starting a new project looking at regime types and conservation efforts. So that's kind of more global in scope. Um, and yeah, I'm not here in North Carolina, so that's become kind of a foreign country as a <laughs> Yeah, so uh, to continue the, the exchange, David, I hand over to you. What is your summer like or your year? So I, I do spend a lot of time um, traveling for for various conferences and and meetings, and my travel for collaboration is is more limited. I do have international collaborators, but we tend to um, exchange ideas uh, via email or teleconferencing. Mm-hmm. But travel for the purpose of of conferences is really a, a very important part of um, my pursuit of science and, and my pursuit of educating future scientists. So I, I tend to um, 
travel to what is probably the largest scientific meeting in the world, which is the Society for Neuroscience. It may uh, rival the ACS or the American Chemical Society, which has anywhere between 30 and 35,000 people attending. And this brings in people from all over the world. And I always take one or two students from Fresno State to meet scientists from around the world to get exposed to how scientists from different countries um, all come together to talk about this this global uh, problems or using a common global language called called science. So this um, November, I will be taking one of my students uh, to Washington, D.C. for Society for Neuroscience, where he'll be presenting his, his research. And I try to do this um, every every year, as, as I said. I think it's, it's very important that students um, from all over the world feel comfortable to come and go into the U.S. to share their science and to be exposed to, you know, what is the premier country for science and, and research. And I think um, that, unfortunately, might be changing, which we may be discussing a bit. Yeah. So I'm going to briefly share what my summer looked like and just to continue the case study of what scientists do with their summers. So I spent this summer traveling to three universities in Europe, two in the Netherlands and one in Germany. Then I flew to a conference in Sweden and there I talked with my collaborators about ongoing new projects. I, of course, presented my own research. I was not traveling with a student this time. That was the first time I'm going to a conference without my students. And after that, I flew to Florida to work for two weeks with a collaborator at University of South Florida. And there I actually was working together with one of her master's students from Fresno. So she's a student here with me and she's right now at Florida to spend the summer there doing research in my collaborator's lab because we hope that she can join his lab next year as a PhD student. And this is sort of their chance to start sniffing each other and seeing whether they like each other and would like to work together as PhD student and PhD supervisor. But that also, for me, that's important because it also shows that my collaborative network, which is an international collaborative network, gives my students opportunities to then go to foreign labs or foreign countries. Sometimes the foreign country is only Florida. (laughs) But I have collaborators also in Japan. I have collaborators in the Netherlands and in Germany. And I send my students there to be exposed to different research labs and different cultures. Yeah, and I think it's it's quite important that we, we spend a lot of our time, and, and often it's the summers that we are, are spending um, training our students and preparing our students and really expanding their horizons beyond the institution that they call home, yeah. which I think is very important. Yep. So I think it's important that our students have the opportunity to travel and this is where current trends are becoming problematic because some of my students of course are um, or some of our students at a university are um, from those seven countries that are facing travel bans and they don't have the opportunity to now travel and uh, join me abroad or go with me to a conference or they are dreamers or um, 
-hmm. And therefore, again, they're very nervous about leaving the country because they might not be able to go back. And and you look at this idea of travel ban, and you can see it not in just the the banning of of traveling to and from these countries on a list, Um, but here in California, state employees are not allowed to travel on business to a certain number of other states. Including pocket expenses. We can, <laughs> yes, but it's still it is stifling science, and it's yep. it is right. stifling collaboration, and this ban on travel is not just a global thing. We, it's happening everywhere. Yeah, wasn't yeah. North Carolina on the travel ban list till recently? Yes, it is. It still is. I it believe. Still is. I believe it still is. <laughs> This, this trip of mine is all out of pocket. <laughs> and, I, and I believe some new states have been added as well to the list, right? Just recently. Yes, uh, 40 states were added, including, I think, well, don't quote me, I, I think Kentucky was one of them. But yeah, the list grows. Yeah. But if you think of this as an issue of a flow of ideas, of communication, then the importance of international collaboration. Uh, you think of attending conferences, of creating these social networks of scientists, you're allowed to meet people that have similar interests in terms of research, of being able to be invigorated by engaging in collaboration, by going to conferences, meeting one another, and really getting a charge out of seeing what other people are doing. Mm-hmm. When we create these travel bans, that's stifling those opportunities. And, and that ability to stay invigorated in terms of a research agenda. And I think it's, it's going to have bigger effects on universities as well if it's uh, on higher education if this kind of ban and, and encroaching restriction sort of expand further because we are already have already been hearing that uh, applications from international students or graduate schools have declined by about 40% this year mm-hmm. compared to previous years. Uh, I just have a new PhD student starting in my lab who's from India, who, who just you know got her visa and, and has made it into the U.S. Of course, India is not on the on the list, but everybody is nervous. But I know NCC here has a pretty big program in in uh, nuclear engineering, <laughs> and you know there, there are people from the regions that are affected by the ban, uh, graduate students who were recruited and who were getting ready to come when the ban hit. So now mm-hmm. they can't come and the labs that were, that were waiting for them to come and start some work have to scramble to find some other people. Yeah. So this is this is uh, affecting things. And on the other side, you know, I'd also say it's not just about exchanging ideas. It's also often, especially in, in cases in fields like mine with ecology, is actual access to field research sites in other places, you know, yeah. being able to go visit and collect data from places. Mm-hmm. That gets restricted if you have travel plans. Or the other thing that I've been, I'm hearing also, you know, from some of my colleagues, uh, in good conscience, are also finding it difficult to uh, object when people, when scientists from other countries are saying we should ban travel to the U.S. because of the U.S.'s attitude right now, and and that's and that's growing, and yeah. in terms of the number of scientists from outside the U.S. who have boycotted the U.S., mm-hmm. who won't come to any meetings, yep. they will not um, form any collaborations with 
U.S. researchers as long as this ban is in place. And I, there are petitions online, and those are growing every day. Right before yeah. our, our show today, I looked up one of these petitions. It had almost 100,000 signatures on it, and yeah. it's, it's growing. And given that, how, that the proportion of foreigners who are driving research in this country is huge. U.S. has a huge proportion of foreigners and research at institutions of high, uh, like the universities, which leads into employment of these foreigners in industries that are driving this economy. This country, it's cutting itself off, off from yeah. the people who are driving its economy. And we're cutting yeah. ourselves off from the driving ideas because if conferences don't come here anymore, if, if we can't collaborate with these people, within the sh a very short time, science moves fast. Within a few years, America will lose its leading position in research and in science, and that will seriously hurt. So we're not just being hurt by stepping out of the climate agreement and stepping away from renewable technology or at least this is what this federal government would like to do, fortunately. Yeah, other, other countries are already, you know, moving to, to snap up scientists who yep. don't want to work in the U.S. Macron with his offer to have yep. scientists move to France, yeah. as an example, with, with money. And other countries are, you know, doing likewise. And and for me, and I'm guessing the same for you, Ulrike, as a, as a foreigner who came to the U.S. Mm -hmm. because... I had much to learn from from you know the being at the leading edge of science in the U.S. This was the place to be. Yes. And if suddenly I'm feeling like you know should I be looking elsewhere now? And that's not that's not healthy yeah. for me or for or for science here. And it's also I'm not a knowledge refugee. I see myself more as a diversity refugee. Because as a woman in science, it was difficult for me to get a job in Europe, as crazy as that might sound. Yeah. Europe is behind when it comes yeah. to civil rights and the inclusion of women in leadership positions, especially in academia. So there is a huge pool of very competent scientists who, for whatever reasons, are not able to do cutting-edge research in their home countries, and they were welcome in the U.S., and that has changed. Mm -hmm. and, yeah, and, I think, and I think that applies even more to probably to women scientists from the, the countries affected by the ban right now, because oh, their yes. conditions are even worse. Absolutely. Yep. Yeah. And uh, any cutting-edge scientist is always a danger in totalitarian areas. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm sort of saddened by... Um, that there's these amazing opportunities offered to scientists and also we will offer these opportunities back if I do and I like you said we are actually foreigners who came here mm -hmm. help this country uh, do good research we contribute to educating people here offering opportunities to people in the Central Valley to broaden their horizon go with us abroad come back, bring this exp experience and these expert the expertise back to the Central Valley. But we are leaving. Yeah. Um, and, and so much of this work would not be possible without that kind of exchange and uh, the flow of information, ideas, as well as people more than anything else. So, you know, David mentioned earlier about, yes, a lot of the international collaboration we do these days is 
kind of like the conversation we are having right now over the phone or Skype or things like that. But uh, real, you know, meeting in what the kids call meet space, you know, meeting face to face is still very important. And for a lot of active research in labs, you have to be go to those labs to be able to make the conduct the experiments or learn techniques and, and uh, the students you're sending around to learn uh, the ways to do different kinds of science. All of that requires not just movement of ideas, but of actual people going from one country to another. Agreed. And you look at trying to, say, solve... Um a global problem. I mean, yeah, the, the obvious yeah. idea of, uh, or the, the approach to solving climate change is, is a global problem. But let's yeah. look at that's something else re- that's been recently in the news over the past few years, like like the Zika virus or Ebola, which mm-hmm. spread through countries. Um, yeah. Zika virus starting in Africa, moving um, through the the Pacific and and into Brazil, all the way up into the United States. Imagine we have closed borders or highly regulated borders. The exchange of ideas, the exchange of scientists to tackle these very uh, urgent problems are are significantly hindered. Mm -hmm. And it's really important that there be open uh, borders for for science and communication of of people and, and, and ideas so that these problems aren't made worse. Yeah. But I also would like, do your research is also an example how by coming to the U.S., we are bringing our own culture and our own local networks. So you yeah. brought to this research your network in India. Yeah. And I know that your wife is doing a lot of research that combines this local network that you have in the U.S. with the local network that you have in India. And that those are unique research opportunities that are opening up because we are also global. I, I lived in many different countries throughout my academic careers and from every country I take away new collaborations and new deeper insights into research but also in culture. And I really appreciate how that makes my life richer, but it also opens up research opportunities and ideas that I wouldn't be able to cash in on if I hadn't worked that way. So like I said, Madhu, I find your research is a classic example of how important these networks are. Yeah, and and I think uh, something else you touched on there, uh, the U.S. has positioned itself, and people may critique it and with on various grounds, but the U.S. has positioned itself as this, as this leader and bringer of democracy to the world. And I think we don't appreciate enough the fact that it's often the scientific discoveries that the U.S. has led on which make it that beacon, you know, the landing on the moon and, you know, all these various technologies being developed, which wouldn't happen without these kinds of international collaborations facilitated by the National Science Foundation or NASA or the National Institutes of Health, you know, government money being spent to foster collaborations to bring people in from other countries to help yeah. create this innovation. Uh, and and in that, these are the things that the U.S. is known for in other parts of the world. Yeah. It's not, you know, kids growing up in, you know, in uh, villages in India may not know much about the political systems here or how your Senate works or whatever, but they do know about NASA. Yes. Mm-hmm. Now, it's people underestimate perhaps how important science can be as an ambassador. Yeah. And scientists are effectively ambassadors. I mean, 
we are we foreigners come to the US and learn a lot more about the US system. I came here rather um, lopsided in my ideas about the US and I learned a lot by living here and I'm now exactly. effectively an ambassador for the US. I mean today I mean this this summer I spent my entire summer talking about American politics because yep. <laughs> <laughs> everybody in Germany and in, in the Netherlands in, in Sweden won't stop asking me things like whether I'm coming back. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, it, it's funny to find oneself being in that position now, isn't it, as a foreigner, but I remember uh, there is a sort of almost hit to me with what happened with the political change with the election here because uh, we at NC State we have we were in the process of hiring an urban ecologist and I have several colleagues who had applied for the position but the search failed because one of the top candidates was a real you know close collaborator of mine from Mexico who basically said once the election results came out last November he said sorry I, I won't even come for the interview I don't want to waste your time I don't want to come to the US right now yeah. wow and then the offer went to somebody from Canada who had a competing offer there, and he said, no, I'm staying in Canada right now. Yeah. So the search actually failed. Yeah. Yeah, I, I don't, I don't see that as surprising at all. No, not, not at all. Yeah. And it's so, sort yeah, of... So there's, there's a, you know, I, I'm, I mean, I don't, you know, I don't want to make it too personal, but I do feel a personal cost here in terms of what the ideas we had and what research I could do yeah. with more collaborators here, and that's being stifled today. Yeah. And it's yeah. sort of sad to see how the tides have turned from the U.S. being this the most attractive place to come to do do science, to that yeah. this now is changing and countries are vying to become the next leader. We eventually mentioned Macron in France who's reaching out to climate scientists in the U.S. to be, become the next climate research center. Yeah. And uh, other countries are vying for those positions too. They're courting scientists and inst entire institutes to move yeah. their position. Yeah. Yeah. yeah in, in some ways, you know, from India, people used to lament, you know, the brain drain to the U.S. <laughs> and the U.S. has benefited enormously from get this immigration of brains from other countries. Yeah. And now I think having built up the infrastructure and trained up a whole bunch of scientists, if they start leaving, that's going to be another enormous unacknowledged cost to the U.S. So instead of having a brain drain, we have a brain ban. Yes. Yeah, but you yeah. have a reverse brain drain. <laughs> yeah, a reverse brain drain. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, and if you think of the the history of these kinds of, of situations, you know, what's happening in the U.S. right now is not unprecedented. If you look at what happened with Germany with the rise of the Third Reich, mm -hmm. that was the exodus of many within the scientific community coming to the U.S., Yes, yeah, and it Frankfurt, ended... The Frankfurt School coming over here. Yeah, and it ended your, Germany's leadership in Europe in as, a, as a research center. Yeah. I need to wrap up because we're almost out of time, which means I'm going to pitch one more time to your dear listener that KFCF is listened to sponsored radio, so please, if you can, call us at 559-573-3355 or go to our website as kfcf.org. We are very happy to have you help us with our funding. And I want to remind you that Central Valley Café Scientifique meets again for the next time in about six weeks on September 11. We'll have another uh, Candle Science in the Dark show before we meet for the next time for Café Sci. 
So I just want to plug that for more information about Café Scientifique and announcements about upcoming events, please visit our website at valleycafesci.org. You can also find us on Facebook or Twitter. You can join us at the Santa Fe Basque in Fresno. And we are meeting, like I said, each first Monday of the month. And remember, in September, the first Monday of the month is a holiday, so it's going to be the second Monday of the month on September 11. And today's show was produced by Vic Bedoin. Our theme music was composed by Scott Hatfield. I want to thank Vic for engineering our show today. And I would like you to tune in again after this, after uh, the next time in a month for our another episode of Science, A Candle in the Dark. Until then, happy sciencing, because remember, science is a verb. We would like to thank KFCF for continuing to host the show in Fresno and bringing this monthly dose of science to their listeners throughout the Central Valley. If you live in their broadcast area, remember to tune in every fourth Wednesday at 3.30 p.m. Pacific Standard Time for the live show. For those of you catching this on podcast, remember to subscribe through whatever podcast app you're using or get it directly from our website at candle.science. If you like what you're hearing, please leave us a positive rating or review in iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. The ratings will really help us increase the visibility of our show and bring in more listeners like you. In addition to the radio broadcast from Fresno, we also bring you new episodes from Raleigh, North Carolina, which are available only through the podcast. You can also follow us on Twitter at science underscore candle and like our Facebook page. If you have a question or comment, do drop us a tweet or message us on Facebook. Thank you for listening, and until next time, happy sciencing!